You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, like I said earlier, and Derek just said, my name is David. Um, my wife and I have been helping to fill in uh, with, for Pastor Riz while he's been gone, and it's been a privilege to be with you guys. Just making sure I have all my stuff set up, and in particular, my timing, because I oh, that's the one thing I always forget when I get up here is to start my timer, and so I'm making sure I do that. Um, just a quick uh, announcement. You guys probably already realized this. There's no, like, child care or youth today, so all the kids are with us, which is awesome. Um, there's a bunch of stuff going on back there, so if you have a kid that wants to draw or do something, they can go back there. Also, at your table, you have a little... Just a little handout for this morning, nothing too crazy, but just a little piece of paper that's something physical that you can be looking at and writing on to help kind of track with what we're going to be talking about um, this morning. Uh, we have been going through a series on the book of Philippians for the past three or four months now, um, and we took a little bit of a pause for Advent leading kind of up to Christmas our Christmas Eve service. Uh, this morning, we're not going to be in the book of Philippians. It's just a kind of a, a little bit of a one-off series, really where I could pick anything to talk about. Um, and I decided to go with a story, one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Luke, the story of Mary and Martha, which is probably um, somewhat familiar to most of you if you've been in the church for any period of time. And one of the main reasons why I picked this passage in particular is my wife was teaching this at our, in a, one of our training schools, um, I don't know, probably like two months ago. And it was one of those that really stood out to me and has great application that I thought, um, I didn't want to do anything too cheesy, New Year's resolution, but I think this has a little bit of um, some application for us to kind of maybe evaluate um, where we've been this past year and kind of looking forward to a new year um, uh, in regards to our discipleship and our uh, following Jesus. Um, it's also a narrative, it's a story, which are always uh, really fun to teach uh, because we can relate most with characters in the story. And that's the thing I love the most about the Bible is that the Bible is filled with people that are just like me, I don't know about you, um, that you can relate to, right? Most people in the Bible are very uh, flawed, imperfect humans that God used, and that's good news for me, and that's good news for you, because that means that he can still do that today. And Martha, in particular, is like my, my spirit character in the Bible. I relate so much to Martha. I wish I could say I related to Mary, but every time I read this, I'm like, yep, there I am. Uh, so this is just as applicable to me as it is, hopefully, to you. And so I'm going to read uh, our text this morning. So if you can, just follow along either on this sheet of paper or in your own Bibles or up on the screen. This is from Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42, and it says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care? That my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. 
but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you are a God that is living and active, that desires to be in relationship with us. You're a God who speaks to us. And so as your people this morning, we just quiet our hearts, we quiet our minds, we quiet our emotions, and submit ourselves to you and to the leading and the guiding and the direction of your spirit. God, it's, it's not just any book that we're reading, but it's the inspired word of God, and so we don't take that lightly, and we know there's amazing things in here that you want to communicate to us. Help us to hear, not just corporately what you're speaking to us as a body, but also individually. We just thank you for this time. Amen. All right, but before we, we dive into kind of a verse-by-verse verse, um, look at this passage, I can't help myself, but I must do just a little bit of historical background that kind of helps give us a frame to understand this story. We can understand a lot in isolation, but I think it just helps to put it in its context. We're reading from the Gospel according to Luke, and if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that there's four different Gospel stories each written by a different author for a different audience. And so each, each of the Gospels has a unique way of presenting Jesus because they have a different response that they want from their intended readers. Um, from the title, it kind of gives it away, but our author is Luke, who was a physician and he was a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. Luke didn't just write the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote Part 2, which is the book of Acts. And you can actually find him with Paul uh, in the middle of that story. We also know uh, that Luke uh, was writing to a predominantly Gentile church or group of churches. These are non-Jewish people. And that's important. I'm going to talk briefly about that as we go through our text. But these are non-Jewish readers basically being introduced to Jesus probably for the very first time. Because this book was written somewhere in the mid to late first century, about a generation or so from the ministry and life of Jesus. And so these people never saw Jesus themselves, most likely. They never witnessed Jesus. They never heard him teach. And so Luke is writing, and they are encountering Jesus as they hear this gospel for the first time. And with that being said, Luke is going to include a lot of different stories about Jesus. He's going to include a lot of different parables and teachings about Jesus. And at the heart of the gospel, there's a main message that he wants to communicate to his readers. And uh, I think this kind of summarizes it well. The message at the heart of the gospel is that it communicates that Jesus is certainly the Jewish Messiah. And that's really important for his readers to understand. But it's also important that they know that he's not just the savior of the Jewish people, but he's actually the savior of the whole world, including Gentiles, which is themselves. And his message of salvation is available to all who respond to him in faith. 
And so what Luke is going to do is he's going to include a lot of different stories about how different people respond to Jesus. And Mary in our story is um, probably one of the greatest examples of someone who responds appropriately to Jesus. And so what we want to do is we want to model ourselves after Mary, preferably, although Martha gets a little bit of a bad rap. Um, she, she kind of redeems herself a little bit, I think, if you read John chapter 11, you see a little bit more about her there. But that's just important for us to understand because um, this message for the Gentile audience is also for them. And so Luke is trying to get his audience to respond positively to this message. And that's really what the story, at the heart of the story, is all about. And with that in mind, let's get back into our text. And from the handout, you can kind of see how I've broken it down, um, sort of verse by verse. And I'm going to kind of touch on a few different points in each of those uh, verses. In verse 38, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now what's interesting is that Luke is actually a very meticulous historian. And he gives a lot of details about where Jesus was and when he ministered. And here, for whatever reason, there is a reason I'm not going to get into because you'd probably be bored. He, he intentionally just leaves out the location of this home. And if we do a quick cross-reference to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, we see the Gospel writer tells us where this home was. It says in verse 1 of chapter 11, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So Lazarus is a very famous story from John. That is the brother of Mary and Martha. And so although Luke doesn't include this uh, detail, we know that this village and this home is in Bethany. And I like maps, and so there's a map for you guys. If you don't know where Bethany is, which most of you probably don't, and that's totally fine, uh, Bethany was about a mile or two away from Jerusalem. So this is right in and around Jerusalem. And starting in chapter 9, basically all the way through chapter 19, Luke portrays Jesus as kind of on this long road trip to Jerusalem where he leaves the, the region of Galilee where he has been for the most part. And for about 10 chapters, Luke is going to uh, give this idea that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where ultimately he is going to suffer and die. And so it's this long journey that Jesus is on. And when we think about taking a long journey, for us, it might be you get in your car, you turn on the air conditioning, you turn on whatever music or podcast you like to listen to, you get on a nice smooth paved road, and you just go. And traveling, or maybe you get on an airplane, right? Traveling, for the most part, is not the most difficult or dangerous thing that we do. Although, if you've driven on H1, you're probably like, no, it is, it is fairly dangerous. My wife and I lived in Houston for a few years, and driving in Houston on those freeways is, is much scarier than H1, right? So we have a little bit of aloha here, uh, which makes it a little bit easier. But in the ancient world of Jesus, they didn't have buses, they didn't have airplanes, they didn't have cars. By and large, people traveled by foot. And it was a very dangerous 
thing to do. Just before our story, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a, a parable that's pretty familiar to us. And that whole story is based off of a man traveling, and he gets um, ambushed by robbers. And Jesus is telling that parable because it's very relatable. This would be a common occurrence in Jesus' world. Not only was it dangerous, but it was dirty and it was exhausting and tiring. And so this, that's a little bit of the background to this story because it's important that we understand this idea of Mar Martha welcoming Jesus into her home. And this is not just the case necessarily of the ancient world. Uh, my wife and I, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. My wife and I, a few years ago, uh, we work with this missions organization called Youth with a Mission. And we were, we were a part of this team that was traveling to the nation of Nepal. And I don't know if you know where Nepal is, but Nepal is sandwiched between China and India. Basically, it's just the Himalayan mountains. If you know where uh, Mount Everest, right? Yeah, Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. Supposedly, I guess the Big Island is trying to claim that title. Um, you know that traveling there is very difficult. If you've ever been on a mission trip or traveled anywhere in maybe more kind of um, undeveloped worlds or nations, it's just a lot more complicated. And Nepal is no exception. So we landed in Kathmandu, and our goal was we were going to travel to the far west, which is this city called, or town called Joomla. And there we were going to take about a week and trek into the mountains and do Bible distribution and evangelism to these remote, unreached people groups in these villages in the mountains. And because we were poor missionaries, we decided let's not take the, like, two-hour plane ride, because... It is a little bit dangerous. The planes sometimes crash into the mountains. But instead of doing that, we decided, let's take the bus. Now, the bus is about uh, 36 hours long. Uh, it's, I would never do that again if I didn't have to. Um, and the road that we had to go is called the Karnali Highway. And I, today, this morning, I just decided to Google it. And besides the first article, Wikipedia article, three, the three articles after that said this, Karnali Highway is a true lethal adventure. The next one said, Karnali Highway proves a death trap for travelers. And then the next one said, the most dangerous road in the world. And let me tell you from personal experience, all of those are true, although I am alive. And here's a picture of our team, uh, which is really fun. Uh, you probably don't know him. If you see me in the middle on the left, the other tall person, that's also one of my younger brothers, um, not the one that was here earlier this uh, past year. But once we got to Joomla, basically what we did is we took another bus about an hour or so outside the town, and we began to trek with our backpacks loaded with Bibles. So the backpack has probably 40 or 50 pounds of weight, we're about six to 8,000 feet elevation. You can't breathe, right? There's nowhere to practice uh, in Hawaii, really, unless you're on the big island for that kind of elevation. And it was really hard. And you're not, you're not hiking on paved roads. You're hiking on these little mountain paths. And sometimes there's snow and, like, ice that you have to climb up. And it's a very dangerous thing. And what we're doing is we're trying to get to these little isolated villages, which I have a picture of, and basically what we're doing is we are just showing up to these villages. They don't know we're coming. 
And we trek probably for four or five hours, first half of the day, and then we arrive as the sun is starting to set. And like in the desert, it gets very cold at night in the mountains. And we would show up to these villages and basically just ask around if people could welcome us into their home. We were 100% reliant on the hospitality of these Nepali people. Again, they don't have a lot of money. They're these isolated groups of people up in the mountains. And time and time again, what did we find but people welcoming us into their home? Their homes slash stables, right? It's kind of like little caves in the ground. They would not just welcome us into their home, but they would cook us a big meal, and it was just amazing. I don't know if you've ever experienced hospitality like that, but when you do, you know it's an amazing gift. And I just have one more picture of an amazing, beautiful Nepali woman that you would run into, um, and that was just for fun. Um, but anyways, traveling, that, that, that experience for me and for my wife reminds us of this story. And this is Jesus and his disciples. They are traveling, and they are tired, and it's been a dangerous road, and they are completely reliant on either family members, friends, or complete strangers. There's no hotels that you can check into. There's nobody living in their vans or tents, right? You are reliant on people welcoming you into their home. And this is important because this is the context of this entire story. And hospitality in the ancient world, like much of our world, is a very high cultural value. This is not something that was an option when somebody showed up at your door. You, you didn't say, hmm, am I in the mood today to welcome them and to... Uh, cook them food and let them sleep in my bed. This was the expectation in the ancient world. To not welcome somebody into your home would be dishonorable. And especially in our case with Martha, because we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus was a close family friend of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Not only was he a close family friend, but he was a religious rabbi teacher. What an amazing honor it would be to have this man show up at your house. And how dishonorable would it have been if Martha said, sorry, find somewhere else to go. So, of course, she welcomes him into her home. This is the cultural expectation that was on Martha. So she was doing what she was supposed to be doing, at least from a cultural standpoint. And that's important, okay, because that helps us understand a little bit more of her motivation that we might miss out on. Now, what's interesting is that it says that she welcomed him into her home. And then in verse 39, we see a little bit more of the setting of the story. And it says, and she had a sister called Mary. And what is Mary doing? Mary is sitting, or she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to her teaching. Now, this is really important location that Luke includes. This detail is really important because it's not just some random uh, piece of information that's like, okay, that's where she is and this is where Martha is. But this place at the feet of Jesus, we can see later on in the book of Acts, is actually a place or a position that a disciple would take. So look with me at Acts chapter 22, verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul who we've been talking about for the past few months, who wrote the letter to the church in Philippi. And he's kind of describing his religious upbringing. And look at the language that he uses. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia. Not Sicilia, that place. But brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. 
according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are in this day. So this place of sitting at someone's feet was a place or position that one would take when they were submitting themselves to the teaching and the leading of a rabbi. Now, for us in the 21st century Western world, this idea of Mary, who is a, a Jewish woman sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching, is like, that's just normal. But in that time and place, that would have been very abnormal. That was not a thing that women during that day would have done. Women during this day would have been doing what Martha was doing, welcoming and serving those that were visiting Here's a, uh, a little excerpt from the InterVarsity Press Bible background commentary by Craig Keener. He says this. He says, women could listen to Torah teaching in synagogue, and occasionally one might listen to a rabbi's lectures, but they were not disciples sitting in the dust at sages' feet. Mary's posture and eagerness to absorb Jesus' teaching at the expense of a more traditional womanly role would have shocked most Jewish men. And it would have shocked Luke's readers. Luke's readers would never have expected Mary to take the position of a disciple. And again, what Luke is trying to do is he's trying to show them how they too can respond to Jesus. If Mary, a woman, was doing an unlikely thing, maybe them as a Gentile could also do the same. Now, in verse 40, what, we're, what, the, what Luke is going to do is he's going to introduce us to kind of the, the heart of the story, which is essentially a contrast between Martha and her sister Mary. We saw earlier that Luke tells us that she was sitting at Jesus' feet, which again was this posture of discipleship and listening to what he had to say. And what is Martha doing? Martha, on the other hand, we see in verse 40 the word but. That's normally indicating that there's a contrast happening, and that's really important. Martha was distracted with much serving. Now, I don't want you to miss the tension in the story. Because like I said before, Martha is doing what was expected of her to do. If Martha did not welcome Jesus into her home and was not serving Jesus, that would have been strange. But then you have Mary who is doing what culturally was not acceptable. And that also would be a little bit strange. And so in the, in the way where we're reading the story, we're like who's, in, like, who's doing the right thing here? Now, of course, Luke is going to tell us. But you need to feel that tension in the story. Because a lot of times we read it and we just immediately say, like, oh, we know that Martha's like, you know, and Mary's chosen the better. But I think we too would have been a little bit... Um, not quite sure how to respond in this particular situation. Martha is doing the culturally appropriate thing while Mary is not. In any, in, if anything, she's actually acting quite um, inappropriate in that time. And if you weren't quite sure what Martha's motivation was, it's important that if you're reading story or you're reading narrative to pay attention to the dialogue, meaning the words that people are saying. Because the author is going to use dialogue to do what's called characterization. 
to help us understand the inner motivation of the character. Because sometimes actions are, you kind of see someone's action, you're like, well, I don't know if that was a good or bad thing or what their motivation was. So pay special attention to what people are saying. And it's cool because he kind of gives us, Luke kind of gives us a little bit of insight into Martha's heart posture. So starting in the second half of verse 40, it says, And she went up to him, this is Martha, and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now what's interesting there is that it's phrased like a question, but it's actually a rhetorical question. She's not actually genuinely asking Jesus, hey, do you care about me? If you know anything about a rhetorical question, my wife tells me the easiest thing to do is just instead of looking at that as like a question, remove the question and put it with like an, like a, either a period or an exclamation mark. So really what she's doing is that she's accusing Jesus of not caring about her. Why is she doing that? Why, is she, why, is she think, why does she think that Jesus does not care about her? I think it's fairly obvious, right? And we're going to see later on that it's because he's not correcting Mary, right? She wants him to basically say, Mary, get up and help your sister. But don't you think this is interesting that Martha calls into question the care of Jesus or the goodness of Jesus or the love that Jesus has for Martha, because he's not doing what she wants him to do. Now, I can't be the only one that does that. So here's a question that I want us to think about. Has, have I ever accused God of not caring about me because he didn't do what I wanted him to do? Or maybe he didn't do what I wanted him to do when I wanted him to do it. I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but I definitely have done that, and I do that all of the time, right? We have an expectation of what we expect of Jesus to do in our lives, and then when he doesn't do what we want him to do, it somehow has this negative effect of how we view his love for us. And because Jesus was allowing Mary to sit at his feet and not help Martha, she was projecting that onto Jesus, and it was as if Jesus did not care about Martha, which we know is not true. And we're going to see that in just a minute. Now, what's even more interesting is that she doesn't just call into question the character of Jesus, but it's rather ironic because after this rhetorical statement or this rhetorical question, she then just flat out commands Jesus. Look at what she says. She says, after that, tell her then to help me. Now, what's ironic about this? Look at how she addresses Jesus in the beginning. She says, Lord. So she addresses Jesus as Lord and then commands her Lord to do what she wants him to do. And you should be reading that and you're like, there's something missing there. Because this title, Lord, is essentially just a title of respect or honor. When someone was your Lord, they were superior, meaning you did what they said to do. You did not command your Lord to do your own bidding, but vice versa. But you see what she's doing here. She is commanding Jesus, who she just called Lord, to do what she wants him to do. 
In other words, her words and her actions are not aligning. On one hand, she's recognizing with her mouth that Jesus is Lord, but in another way, she is acting as if she is Jesus' Lord. Now, again, just a quick pause, because if you are anything like me, this can also be a common occurrence in my life. So the question that we should ask ourselves is, do I say that Jesus is Lord with my words, but my actions speak otherwise? Do I actually live my life in a way that Jesus is Lord, meaning that he has total, absolute authority over every single area of my life? Do I say that Jesus is Lord, but live otherwise? Do I have certain things where he has authority and say over, and then over here I say, nope, I'm good. I got it figured out. Just don't touch it. Leave that alone. Do I say that Jesus is Lord with my words, but my actions speak otherwise? Now that we've kind of gotten a little bit more into the psyche or the heart posture of Martha, we want to kind of finish off where Luke left off with this contrast. And I don't want us to miss how Jesus responds to Martha. Because I think if we were to project ourselves onto Jesus, you might think like Jesus would respond and be like, excuse me, who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? Why do you think you can command me to do what you want me to do? Right? You would think there would be maybe a little bit of a rebuke, a harsh response, but no, that's not the case whatsoever. Martha is acting very inappropriately, and look how Jesus responds to her. And we cannot miss this. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Jesus responds in pure empathy. He understands Martha. He understands what's going on in her life and in her heart and in her mind. And he brings about a very empathetic, loving redirection. And that's important for us to understand because that is how God works in our lives through the power of his spirit. He wants to bring correction to us when we're distracted and we're misguided, but he doesn't come in with, uh, and, and smack you around, right? He comes in as a loving, gentle, kind father that loves his children. He responds to us in empathy. He understands who we are and what our struggles are. And we see that Luke tells us that not only was she distracted, we saw in verse 40 that Martha was distracted with much serving, but here we also see Jesus tell us that she was anxious and troubled about many things. And I mentioned this before, but every time I read that, I'm like, that's me. I'm like always distracted and anxious and troubled about many things. My mind is consumed with distracting thoughts. My life is filled with anxiety. And I'm troubled about many things. And I think all of us can say that is true of us to some degree or another. And that's why I love this story. It's because it's so relatable. 
And that's why I love Jesus' response because, you guys, I can beat myself up and get frustrated with myself and just think, I just need to do better and I need to be less distracted and I need to be less anxious and I need to be less troubled. But that's not the way it works. But when I find myself going in that direction, I hear the voice of God say, David, David, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But there's one thing that's important, right? Now what's interesting is that we see in the end of verse 41 and the beginning of verse 42, this major contrast where Martha is anxious and troubled about many things. And then contrasting with one thing is necessary, right? So you have a lot of things over here and then you have one thing. And this is where kind of the story kind of, um, kind of comes to its conclusion. And look at what Jesus says. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. So if we were confused in the beginning with that tension of like, who's doing the right thing? Is Martha doing the right thing? Or is Mary doing the right thing? Jesus tells us that Mary has chosen the better thing. And this thing is something that is not temporal, but is eternal. This is something that's never going to be taken away from Mary. And I don't know about you guys, but most of the time when I'm worried and distracted and anxious, it's about stuff that I'm not going to have for very long. Our lives are consumed with things that are so temporary. All the while we are distracted from the one thing that will remain, the one thing that is eternal, and that is relationship in proximity to Jesus. So I always have to ask myself, of course, sometimes it's good to, uh, you know, take stock and to, to, you know, to plan and to prepare, but where am I spending my time? Where is my energy and my efforts? And where is my anxiety and my fear? Where is it oriented to? Because a lot of times, you guys, I'm just flat out distracted. I'm like Martha. But I want to be more like Mary. I want to be the person that has chosen the one thing or chosen the good portion that will never be taken away. And this is kind of the final application question I want us to think about before we enter into our response time, the second set of musical worship. So I'll ask uh, Zach and Nick to come back up. And again, this is kind of the heart of the story. So the question is, what are the many things in my life that are distracting me from the one thing? And I think this story, one of, the, one of the important things about this story is that Martha's not doing anything necessarily bad or evil. She's actually doing something very culturally appropriate. She's actually doing something really good, but it's not the best thing. So what I think we should evaluate in our lives is there's a lot of really good things that we're doing in our lives. But are those many good things distracting us from the one most important thing, which is our relationship and our discipleship to Jesus? 
This week I've been reading this book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, and he says this, and I thought this quote was kind of appropriate. In contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. I'm just going to close us in prayer. And again, the main thing that I want us to take away is just for us to evaluate our lives and to see, to write down, even if we need to, the things that are good, but they're just distracting and they're taking away from the one thing, which is Jesus. And again, I want to reiterate what's important is that we remember the response that Jesus had to Martha. It's a, it's a response of empathy. It's a response of love. It's a response, a true response of care for her. Jesus cares just as much about Martha as he does about Mary. So even in his uh, loving correction, he has her best intention in mind. Martha, Martha. Father, we just thank you so much for the gift of your word. We thank you for the spirit of God who is living in us, that is empowering us to be more conformed to the image of your son. We recognize, God, that we can do nothing in and of ourselves. There's, no, there's nothing we can muster to, to try to be less anxious or, or less worried, God, but we, we are desperate for you, Jesus. God, I pray that we as your people, a community that follows Jesus, would be a, a people that are marked by um, the one thing, by choosing daily the one thing that is most important, the one thing that will be never taken away from us, which is you, and relationship and discipleship at the feet of Jesus. We thank you that uh, although you are the, G the, the, the Jewish Messiah, you are the Savior of the whole world, God, and that you're calling us to respond like Mary, respond in a posture of faith, sitting at your feet. And so we just give you the rest of this time together as we respond in our prayer and in our praise and our worship. Amen.